Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today, we're looking at the penultimate episode of Star Trek Picard Season 2, entitled Hide and Seek. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. You can find our announcements about new episodes and other content by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. To subscribe your app to the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And Rodney, while we still consider that our standard procedure podcast day is Sunday, we're in a string of weeks here when Sunday just doesn't work and we have to record a little bit later. Uh, a week ago, I was traveling for a conference on Sunday. This week you were. And there's also the challenge that in the United States, this is final test week. And although we usually hear about how hard students have to work for final tests, it's a lot of work for teachers too. Absolutely. It's all that grading that's got to get done yep. by the deadline that is immovable. And this coming week is also complicated by the end of the semester in the United States, where Michael and I are, and the fact that we have two new episodes to consider. So we've got the Picard season finale, of course, and the Strange New Worlds season premiere in the US and Canada anyway. So as a result, we're going to aim for our Picard finale episode on Monday, U.S. time, and the Strange New Worlds podcast uh, the following Tuesday, depending upon how the test grading goes. And after that, we think we can get back to podcasts dropping on Sundays. At least mostly during the summer months. Sorry, we can't be perfectly consistent about the day the podcast drops, but please do remember, we don't ask for money like a lot of podcasts do. So this is not a for-profit podcast. And we do need to work around our personal and professional events and schedules like commencement and final grades uh, this coming week. All right. So the first thing on our agenda is a brief review of the episode this week's entitled Hide and Seek. And with our summary, here's Professor Michael Merrick. And there is a huge amount going on in this episode as we're coming down to the end of the season. Gerardi Borg and her assimilated troops Occupy La Serena actually fairly easily with only Seven and Raffi on board after Rios evacuates Teresa and her son, Ricardo. The drone troops who come with the Queen are fairly handily taken care of with help from a holographic version of Elnor. We see a confrontation between the intellects of the Queen and Agnes. Agnes proposes a different kind of Borg in which people join willingly and the collective works for galactic good. She proposes this because she knows that the queen's constant assimilation of species is really driven by loneliness. And Agnes argues that being a force for good can build the connections that the queen is desperate for. The others have taken refuge in Chateau Picard where Soong is leading the troops trying to find them. Rios is injured and Talon beams him Teresa and her son Ricardo back to Talon's apartment. Picard leads Talon into the catacombs under the chateau, where we learn the truth that Picard has been hiding from himself. His mother was having a psychological episode, and Maurice locked her in her room. 
Yvette pleaded with young Jean-Luc to let her out, which he did, and soon after found that she'd committed suicide, for which he has long blamed himself and hidden away in his memory. When Soong finally catches up with Picard and Talon, Rios beams at the last moment and phases all the drone troops, but Soong gets away. The queen has injured seven, but after persuasion by Jurati, uses her nanites to heal Seven. In the process, Seven's Borg implants are restored. However, the quid pro quo is that Jurati Borg is allowed to leave with La Serena and route the Delta Quadrant where the Borg are in this era, hoping to reinvent the collective. But before she goes, the Queen has a cryptic message for Picard. The Europa mission must not be stopped and that for the mission to succeed, there must be two Renes, one who lives and one who dies. So our remaining heroes are on the ground without a starship, but they turn and walk off to save the day next week in the season finale. Yeah, that was a very cryptic message. I still don't know what it means there. But before we talk about the philosophy, the themes, and the morals to the story, there are a few things about the episode we'd like to touch on. First, we try to avoid the Easter egg lists that so many articles online do a good job with, but we still have a few things we'd like to call your attention to. And as you noted, Michael, we finally saw the rest of Picard's story in this episode. Why is Picard keeping others at a distance? Well, it's because his mother, who he loved desperately, ended her own life, and Picard has been blaming himself for it. And Lara says something very profound to him. She says, love can be a source of tremendous guilt, a reason to run from ourselves or away from each other. Of course, that's exactly what Picard has been doing. You know, even more, Rodney, I think he may have really blocked it out of his conscious mind and is only remembering now due to the circumstances and being back in the catacombs under the chateau. Several predictions that we have made this season became reality in this episode, including that it was Picard letting his mother out of her locked room that led to something bad happening. Of course, we and many others have been predicting that Jurati is the queen who appeared in episode one, asking for Federation membership for the Borg, and that seems almost definite now. And we haven't exactly been batting a thousand here. Uh, one prediction I made was incorrect. Knowing something about Patrick Stewart's childhood, I thought this season was going to be about domestic violence. Well, not really. Oops. But now that the threat of the Borg Queen has apparently been neutralized, that leaves Sung, who I speculated some weeks ago might be the real enemy. And of course, we'll see the showdown with him in the season finale. Hide and Seek is a strong episode. I have to say there was one plot hole that the producers probably hoped we wouldn't notice. Why did Talon beam herself, Picard, Seven, and Raffi into the courtyard of the chateau and not directly onto the ship? Good question. If they'd been on the ship, they would have had an excellent chance, I think, of defeating the Borg commandos and keeping the ship out of the hands of the queen, Talon may just not really be a tactician. And, you know, she didn't click on the idea of to, to save the ship, we should be on board as opposed to a mile away, you know, because she beamed them to the wrong place. At another point in the episode, she doesn't know what divide and conquer means, 
which I think any reasonable tactician would. Yeah, that that's a problem. I guess while we're on the subject of things that bothered us, there is something that bothered me about this episode. Last season, the Borg were seen in a compassionate light, I think for the first time. And it seems in this episode, we're back to these first contact era attitudes toward them. And I know they have to save the future and all that, but this Borg massacre was pretty graphic at times, disturbing really. And seven of all people said, quote, those aren't people out there, they're Borg. It's really the opposite of what we saw last season. And I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. Yeah, last season, we really saw them as victims, you know, the ex-Borg as victims, and that's not really what we're seeing here. But I think in many ways, those are the two downsides in this episode. I mean, it was a strong episode. Raffi and Seven sprinting across open ground toward the ship through the Borg commandos reminded me of the final scene of the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They're in, I think it's Bolivia, and they're surrounded by federales and they they burst out of the open guns blazing and then we don't see the rest of what happened in this case we didn't see either we didn't see how they made it through to the ship but they did make it to the ship without serious injuries the one renee who lives and one who dies is a lot like last season remember in the romulan psych ward ramda asks soji which sister she is the one who lives or the one who dies. Oh, wow. And so speaking of Soji, is Corey going to make another appearance? Does she end up being one of the Renees? Just maybe possibly? Or, and I think this is more likely, does Talon somehow go in Renee's place because of her overarching mission of protecting Renee? Remember that we are told that Renee goes, finds a sentient life form on Io, which invalidates Soong's work and therefore preserves the timeline. But maybe Renee herself, because remember, she's a pilot. Maybe she isn't capable of making that find, but Talon is with her alien knowledge and her, it's not a sonic screwdriver, but it's a sonic screwdriver. Might as well be. The question of which one dies is still troubling that they'll have to resolve next episode in the season finale. You know, that's interesting what you've just said there. I'm wondering, there's another possibility though. Maybe Talon ends up giving her life somehow to protect Renee as a sort of decoy Renee or something. I don't know, but one way or the other, her lifelong mission is protecting Renee. So that's true. One way or the other, I think that will, will happen. I don't know how many people noticed, but Holo Elnor is wearing a mobile emitter on his sleeve. I noticed. Yeah. Like the doctor had in Voyager. In the main Trek timeline, Voyager picked up the mobile emitter tech from a time traveler when they returned to 1996. That presumably didn't happen in the xenophobic authoritarian timeline, but the mobile emitter they got is from the xenophobic authoritarian uh, timeline. So somehow they managed to acquire that, acquire or create that technology. I also noticed that while the tech in Talon's apartment is mostly Romulan text, the key messages the audience needs to know were in English. That's convenient. The writers give Picard what seems to be a throwaway line about how he sometimes imagines chatting and having tea with an older version of his mother, 
I guess this is kind of an Easter egg because it explains away the vision of her he had way back in season one of Next Generation in which the fantasies or desires of the Enterprise crew were being brought to life. And he sees Yvette sitting there having tea at a table, and she is clearly a senior citizen. And I also note that it appears that Rios did not take his future medical technology with him when he beamed back to the chateau, meaning that Teresa still has it. As we have speculated, you know, I think it's likely that he stays, but it also means she's likely to continue to use that tech. And uh, since mostly her clinic appears to serve low income, probably not very many people with medical insurance, she probably won't have to explain the treatments using future tech to the medical insurance companies. Right. How are they going to code that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I, I don't think Rios is going to be in season three. And here's another reason for thinking so. La Serena is gone. Right. In my mind, Rios and La Serena are a package deal. You know, it would be polite if the Borg Queen, upon arriving in the year 2402 to ask for Federation membership, would return it, you know, <laughs> have it in storage and return right. it to him. Here's your ship back. Yeah. <laughs> and then Seven would say, no, that's my ship. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Rios is, is going to stay behind. And uh, another thing, I, I've always, I've been wondering this entire season about why it's always dark in France. Yeah. <laughs> but we finally see in this episode, the sunrise in France as La Serena warps away. And that's the end of the episode when Gerardi Borg leaves. My point is that suggests a brighter future for the galaxy, doesn't it? Yeah. The symbolic. symbolism of light and dark, certainly. You know... Gerardi getting to the Delta Quadrant is going to take a long time, Gerardi yeah. Borg, I should say. For Voyager, I mean, they were, they were sort of at the far end of the Delta Quadrant, but the trip home would have been decades, except that they had spatial anomalies and transwarp corridors and things like that. Now, we speculated last week, I think, about whether the Queen might be able to cobble together the gear needed to initiate a transwarp corridor. And of course, it is almost completely positive now that it is Gerardi as the queen who appears in episode one to ask for Federation membership, which is the whole trigger for our heroes ending up in the parallel universe and going back in time. But so I'm wondering what part of the inter-universe travel was Borg tech or what part was Q? We've assumed that Q is the one who pushed them over to the parallel universe, but was it? The actions of, of the Borg Queen certainly played a part in that episode. And uh, by the way, Gerardi tells the Queen that it always ends for the Queen with a lone Borg Slayer and a United Federation across all universes. And this statement parallels what the Queen told Gerardi early in the season, that Gerardi is alone across all timelines. Right. And that's a good point. And so is the queen ultimately alone in all across all these universes, right? Yeah. The fact that they have merged and are becoming something new to me is reminiscent of Star Trek, the motion picture. Remember Viger oh, right. and Decker merged and right. I think it was McCoy who said, we're seeing the birth of a new life form. Yep. So that is reminiscent there also. Yeah. Good point. And speaking of loneliness, <laughs> 
This is Star Trek's Eleanor Rigby episode, isn't it? Look <laughs> yeah, at all the of. lonely people. Yeah. So there's Picard, Gerardi, the Borg Queen, Raffi. We'll be talking about this later, I'm sure. We've got Seven and also Rios, I think. And right? Teresa, too, I think maybe you could say is lonely. Absolutely. And Teresa. So, and this season, as we've observed, is all about connection, among other things. I hope we'll do a rundown of the themes in our final podcast for this season. But it's no surprise that all of these characters are looking to connect, right? And, you know, it's interesting, the underlying theme of the most recent season of Discovery also was connections. That's right. Yeah. And so in both cases, I think it may reflect the perception of the, the producers and the writers as they're plotting out the story arcs about a need in today's society. Absolutely. So we're talking about themes. Why don't we go ahead and switch gears to the section of the podcast where we're talking about meanings and messages. What do, you, what do we think the writers and the producers wanted to convey? Uh, we're down to the wire on the season here. And so we're getting quite a bit here for these themes, I think. And we've already talked about the connections theme, but in terms of understanding meaning, for me, I think we need to start with understanding the overarching metaphor that the Borg represent. In Star Trek's positive multicultural view of the future, of a future that embraces technology, it is not surprising that the great anti-hero, the Borg, misuses technology in a monocultural and a deeply utilitarian way that has really no respect for those who are different, including, of course, those who embrace individuality. Now, that's a good point there. It's the anti-federation in a way. Yeah, kind of. Based on Seven of Nine and other drones that have been separated from the collective and also what the Queen has shown us this season, Borg drones appear to find great comfort in never being alone, being immersed in what must be a cacophony of thoughts of billions of mm -hmm. Borg. <clears throat> and it's just like a lot of people today are unable to stand being disconnected from their smartphone friends and they end up being pressured to conform by forwarding memes and playing games and being guilt-tripped by statements like, only one in 147 people will share this. <laughs> right. You know? Right. There's texting also. Yeah. And you see that in college students. You know, oh, If they're more than a minute away from looking at their phones, they start getting antsy, even though they're not supposed to be using phones for things not related to class in class. But I think the Borg are not just representative of today's marketing in which loss of privacy and sharing of personal data leads to claimed improvement of quality of life. The collective is a powerful majority suppressing the weaker minorities. Right. And the great underlying message of all Star Trek is multiculturalism. And the Borg are not just compelling bad guys. They're the antithesis of a multicultural society. Mm. In today's terms, you know, basically they're the white nationalists who are interested only in maintaining their majority and therefore their power. The, right. the dominant white culture they believe is undermined by the differences of the immigrants, just as the Borg can't abide by individuality and forcing individuals to perfectly integrate into their dominant cyborg society. 
Right. I had a take on this, Michael. I, I thought about this episode in terms of the immigration debate in the United States. And we had some episodes earlier in the season that took a look at that. So the, you know, the conversation between Gerardi and the Borg Queen about the nature of the Borg is just packed with meaning. So I've got some quotations here. Gerardi says that the galaxy is filled with lives that need saving. And she proposes a Borg based not on assimilation, but salvation that embraces the uniqueness of its members. So I was thinking that this is really about the United States, maybe some other countries too, that are uh, xenophobic right now. And, you know, I'm thinking about the people who are showing up, still are, at the southern border of the U.S. These folks, they're requesting asylum. They're looking for a better life. And some folks here want immigrants to assimilate. That's the word they use when they get here. But I, I think the writers are saying that we need to celebrate our differences and welcome the opportunity to save lives. And those are, as you're pointing out, those are traditional Star Trek values, right? Yeah. Agnes's solution to the Borg Queen is building connections with lives that need saving and embracing their uniqueness. And that is candidly in the United States, at least the liberal political view. And candidly, that also tends to be the Hollywood solution to this bugaboo of illegal immigration in the US. Agnes talks about the lives that need saving, embracing their uniqueness versus that black and white conformity to the majority. Now, the Borg Queen, I was interested, interprets this as saving people stranded on derelict spaceships. Mm -hmm. But it also describes, as you as you point out, refugees fleeing violence, looking for right. safety, looking for a better life. Right. Good point. Now, we have to remember that there are multiple Borg queens, even though they all look pretty much alike. Voyager established that they are members of species 125, which means they were assimilated fairly early in the history of the Borg. I think last time we heard Borg was up to like in the eight... 8,000s or more of species assimilated. Mm. And the queens have the mental ability to hear and also organize the thoughts, the Borg thoughts. And again, there are multiple queens, but at least we're talking thoughts of tens of thousands of minds on a given ship and very possibly a, a larger component of the Borg than that. Uh, and I'm wondering how that ability goes hand in hand with the loneliness that Gerardi talks about. Hmm. Is it a characteristic of the species 125, not just the individual members who become queens? Why doesn't assimilating entire species uh, address that need for connection? Gerardi appears to have won over the queen by providing this alternative solution to the question of connection versus loneliness. Again, going back to what we talked about a minute ago, the loss of connection I think is the core fear of the white nationalists that they will lose their connections, be submerged in a changing culture in which the former minorities might become a majority mm. and one that is different from how they perceive their current tribe to be. And again, I connect that back to the Borg and Gerardi and the Borg Queen. We also see the question of connection versus loneliness with young Jean-Luc and his mother and the isolation resulting from Yvette's oh, right. depression, whatever her mental condition is. 
the connection versus loneliness is also the dynamic of seven of nine, as we see it this season. She connects with others better without the implants visible on her face and in her hand. And so has it been other people seeing the implants on her face that made them react coldly? Or was it her own attitude that caused them to be reluctant to form a connection with her? If she understands differently now and her own attitudes change, even though the appliances are back on her face, will people be more receptive to her? I also wanted to mention Rafi. Let's not forget Rafi. Remember, she confesses to the emergency combat hologram that she manipulated Elnor into remaining at the Academy because she didn't want to be alone. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, every one of the main characters has a level of loneliness this season, which is interesting because last season we saw all of them as broken. Right. Uh, but by the end of season one of Picard, we saw them all on the mend, if not cured, at least on the mend. And here we're seeing a different dynamic. Talon uses different words about connection, but what she tells Picard about love also resonates. She says love can be a source of pain and sorrow, but it's also a gift. Mm -hmm. And so, as I said, I think all of these things connect to the long-term multicultural message of Star Trek. I agree. I agree completely. So, any final thoughts about this episode? Michael, are we ready to move on to our final thoughts? Well, I had a fun thought this week about the Gerardi Borg queen departing the solar system in, in La Serena. Yeah, by the way, I wanted to say something about that. Did Raffi and Seven seem a bit too sanguine about that? I mean, Seven told her, whoever you are now, half of you is our friend. Maybe in time, all of you could be. And the key word there was maybe. I, it just seems to me if I were them, I'd be really worried about this. I mean, they were trying to look out for butterflies this season. And, and this whole thing has become a complete mess. Yeah, you're right. Uh, among other things, how do they get home without a starship? But, yeah, but I wanted, that too. Yeah, I wanted to tell you about my fun thought. I'm not expecting this to happen. It was just my fun thought. We know that the Vulcans are watching Earth. Yeah. What if La Serena were to be intercepted oh. by Vulcan ships <laughs> that announce humans are not yet ready to leave the solar system? Right. You know, in 2024, yeah, we know that Vulcans are there. Would they have enough oomph to stop La Serena? The Vulcans won't have a Warp 7 starship for another century, hmm. as we saw in Star Trek Enterprise. And for a, a survey observation mission, they may not have much for weapons, so they might not have the oomph. But I don't really expect the story to go that way. As you hinted, I think it may well be that we don't see La Serena and the Borg Queen again until we get to the point. I'm assuming we're going to jump back to that point on Stargazer and see what happens next. There. Yeah. You know, Rodney, I've talked about the Borg a lot already in this podcast, but in terms of final thoughts, I have, I have more. I have more to say about them. I wrote something a while back. I never published it, so I can't prove it, but I wrote something a while back speculating about what the Borg would be like in the mirror universe, where you remember everything is morally and ethically reversed. Right. I speculated that in the mirror universe, the Borg would be a voluntary association of people of many species working for freedom and social justice. 
Sounds familiar. <laughs> so Girardi's idea, yeah, was something I've, I'd already thought about some. I wished I'd published what I wrote so I could claim that the Star Trek producers ripped me off, but I didn't publish it. So, <laughs> so you mentioned uh, the mirror universe. I guess uh, Girardi is to the Borg queen as Prime Kirk is to mirror Spock, right? Yeah, the voice of ethics and compassion and the voice advocating change. So many of the Star Trek original series episodes were based on angst over what in the 1960s was the growing computerization of the world and about the impersonal nature of computers making decisions without human intervention, because all of that was brand new in the 1960s. Yeah, a good example of this is the TOS episode, The Ultimate Computer in which Dr. Daystrom's computer is given control of the Enterprise and all hell breaks loose. Yeah, but there were several other episodes, too, in which you yeah. know, a computer is running society or, you know, it, it, it was all over. And, and I think that was a social issue. You know, social security numbers were being computerized and databases were first being assembled in the 1960s. And there was a lot of probably legitimate angst about it. The next generation producers appealed to that same concern when they created the Borg, again, a technological enemy that takes away freedom, individuality, and self-determination. And we're more used to computers today, but we still have angst, you know, about who owns Twitter, for example, how are social mm. media algorithms affecting yeah. society. So you've got to say that everything about the Borg of the main Star Trek timeline is unethical. Right. But, you know, I think technology today is not that far away from being able to transmit information through brain plants. We've seen some experimental applications where people can control computer mouses by their thoughts and things. So oh, it's right. still very experimental. We've even seen technology that to a certain extent at least can repair body damage from inside. So the potential for a voluntary association of people who are networked through brain implants, not just phones, and coordinate their actions that way to accomplish projects and goals, to be honest, probably isn't that far away in the future. I won't predict what year, but right. it's not that far away. And so this makes me ask, why isn't the Borg Collective a pure democracy? You'd think it would be. Why did they go down the path they did, the Borg themselves essentially being xenophobic authoritarians in, in their own way? Are the Borg queens who have that ability to organize all those thoughts, are they the ones that inject these morally negative attitudes? Today's experience with social media, even without direct brain implants, mm -hmm. <laughs> makes you wonder how easy it would be within the Borg collective to subvert the collective's networked collaboration with disinformation and disingenuous attitudes. You know, I've, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this lately, you know, that whoever owns Twitter has a great deal of influence over how our public discourse goes because much of it is on Twitter and social media. And that's worrisome to me at, at least. And Likewise with the Borg, you know, it's unfortunate <laughs> that early on the Borg assimilated species 125 and took advantage of its capability to organize these thoughts, as you say, but it was an unfortunate thing that, you know, I think that this negative path that the Borg went on was just due to a quirk 
in the psychology of species 125. It could be. If that's true, we have to infer that the entire species is really messed up, desperate for companionship, never finding what they need, even in the billions of people they assimilate and their entire species has assimilated. So it's not necessarily just the Queens, it's the entire species that is peppered throughout the collective. One queen, remember, even thought data might be the ideal entity to connect with. Of -hmm. course, he didn't go for it for very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, So following this train of thought, a question might be what would cause an entire species to be as messed up as species 125 folks are? I think there's a chance that the overall Borg collective may have started out differently than they ended up. You know, Guinan and Kuhu said the collective's been around for thousands of centuries. On the other hand, in Dragon's Teeth, Seven said that Borg records from just 500 years earlier were spotty, meaning around 1875. And how does a totally digital culture have spotty records? Hmm. Did something happen that changed the direction of the collective? Maybe the Gerardi Queen is making the collective great again by embracing diversity and humanity. But to do that, she'll have to take over and change the direction of the entire collective that is already huge, billions, maybe even trillions of individual drones, but also massively narrow-minded. And apparently to do it in a way that the best of both worlds and first contact still happen. Mm. So the more you think about Girati's plan, the more complicated it gets. Yeah, this is a real problem. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Hugh. Girati's kind of like Hugh. She's what Sung called uh, a rogue variable, although he used that term to refer to Picard. Yeah. I mean, when you think about what Hugh did to his own ship <laughs> after he was returned to it, it's plausible to think that a Girati Borg would have a tremendous impact on the collective. So I wonder how they're going to, how this is going to work. <laughs> Either she stages a revolution starting in the 21st century that transforms all of the Borg or her ship seeking membership in the Federation is only one faction and there are still bad mm. guy Borg out there somewhere. Okay. And that could have long-term ramifications too. It does, however, remind us of a scene in Lower Decks in which far in the future, we see a classroom with students learning about the very famous Miles O'Brien. Remember that? And there are Borg children in the class. Oh, wow. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And finally, Rodney, I think we need to talk just a bit about Strange New Worlds that premieres and that we'll talk about next week in podcast. Our long wait is just about over. Yeah. On Will Wheaton's Ready Room this past week, many of the Strange New World actors and showrunners were, they were emoting about how different it is doing episodic television, which of course is a kind of television we grew up with. That's right. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, number one, because it is kind of the structure of Star Trek we grew up with, not these season-long story arcs. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, it may change our podcast some, particularly the section of the podcast where we talk about the meanings, morals and meanings. With these season-long story arcs we've been getting, it's been harder to define lessons to be learned from one single episode. Right. Sometimes we've just had to say, well, this might be a theme, but we're going to have to wait for a few more episodes to see for sure. And I'm expecting that there will be more overt messages and themes for us to talk about in Strange New Worlds episode by episode. 
using science fiction settings to comment on maybe 20 or 30 social issues a season, not just on one or two in a season-long story arc. That's one of the things that made people resonate with the early Star Trek series when they, sometimes they were doing close to 30 individual episodes. Now, mm-hmm. Strange New Worlds is a 10-episode season, but it's still, it's still likely to give us a broader look at Star Trek philosophy than we've had in some of the recent live-action Star Trek. Yeah, it's going to be per- perhaps a little broader. I'm hoping that it's not heavy-handed, though. We'll just have to wait and see. I mean, if you're only given... 50 minutes or so to explore a theme, there's less time to let it develop. So we'll see, you know, whatever happens, I'm definitely looking forward to this because as you said, people of our age grew up with episodic uh, television. So it'll be fun to take a more contemporary look at that kind of storytelling. Yeah. We're aware that Strange New Worlds is not going to be available worldwide due to various Paramount Plus streaming contracts. Uh, But we are going to do our podcasts about it, and we hope that the ability to stream it legally worldwide will be available soon. Yes, indeed. With that, I guess that will do it for this week, and we thank you for joining us. We'll be back with two podcasts next week, the first on Monday with our look at the season finale of Picard, and then on Tuesday with the Strange New Worlds premiere. That's our plan if we can if we can make it work, if all of the other factors in our lives uh, cooperate. We hope so. We will do our best. Now, you can keep track of new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.